0: This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author chris lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include Strong Language Mature Themes Casual Ableism Scenes of Extreme Tension and Terror, and Graphic Violence and Threats of Violence. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 300. Hello, Metamorphs! Welcome to the 300th episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. For more than six years running, I've been bringing you weekly installments of my fresh new fiction and sharing my journey as a writing professional. So let's get on with it. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 41 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Miriam Bakhtivar is a force to be reckoned with. As one of the most powerful egoists in the Psi Collective, she can use her psionic power to enhance her speed, strength, senses, or agility. Well, beyond the scope of normal humans, and to arrest the aging process, keeping herself as fit and beautiful as she was in her twenties, even though she's close to two centuries old. As an elder, she can shroud herself in telepathic anonymity, allowing her to move unnoticed through the mundane world. As deputy headmistress of the prestigious Westfall Academy, she has vast reserves of wealth and resources and connections all over the world. She is a powerful ally, and a dangerous enemy. But Miriam is far from the only powerful, dangerous person in Metamor. For the last three weeks, she has been trying to track down Victor Hinkavos, a prominent former member of the Psi Collective. Victor was a psyop, part of an elite special forces unit within the Empire's military intelligence directorate. In exchange for doing the Empire's dirty work, Victor was promised a breeding cell when he left the service. But for the last fifteen years, the Metamorph Hive has held that carrot out of Victor's reach. Victor was too valuable in the field, and the ruthlessness that made him effective also made him a poor candidate for a cell husband. Nobody who knew Victor wanted to get too close to him. Victor finally got fed up with the Collective's unkept promises. He took a job for the Vampire Syndicate, the Collective's arch-enemy. He killed two of his fellow size during the mission, then killed the third, Philippe Devereux, in order to frame him for the crime. Victor took the money and struck out on his own, but not before paying off the debts of one Abby Preston, a teenage telepathic prodigy whom Victor had brought into the hive after the deaths of her parents. Unbeknownst to everyone, Victor has been quietly grooming Abby for years, preying on her innocence and naivete to make her see him as her champion and savior. When Victor left, he brought Abby with him. If the Hive won't give him a family, he'll make one of his own. Outraged at the way Victor had manipulated one of her students, Miriam sent out agents to find him and Abby. When the girl realizes that Victor has been abusing her, Miriam wants to make sure she can still come home to the Collective. But Victor has stayed one step ahead of Miriam's people, and when she sent his old buddy Egan Hunter to track him down, Victor laid a trap for him. In last week's episode, we learned that Victor had kept Egan's phone after killing him. When Miriam called Egan looking for an update, Victor finally knew who in the Hive leadership was after him. He responded by going back to his old associate in the Syndicate, William Westerson, the Vampire's Intelligence Czar. Westerson was smarting from a recent raid on one of his holdings, Viscount Security Solutions. Miriam played a pivotal role in organizing and executing that raid, so Westerson and Victor once again have a common interest. Victor gleefully told Westerson everything he knows about Miriam's strengths and weaknesses. He's more than happy to let the vamps do the dirty work to get rid of her, so he can go back to the business of building his happy ending. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read by Chris Lester Chapter 41 Miriam sat in the window seat near the middle of the subway train, watching as the lights of the tunnel raced by. No one took the seat next to her, but no one paid her any real attention either. The gray was like that. As long as she didn't do anything too unusual, The mental screens that she had wrapped around herself would ensure that no one remembered her face, her name, or even her gender. They had taught her to use it when she first became an elder, in order to separate her role as the voice of the Hive from her role as an individual member. She had soon found that it had other uses as well. The Grey wasn't quite invisibility, but in some ways it was even better. For one thing, an invisible person would constantly have people running into her. She was coming home after a long meeting with the other elders of the Metamore Hive. She could have taken a taxi, or requisitioned a private skimmer, but Miriam preferred the trains. A skimmer could be tracked fairly easily, but in the subway system she could move like a ghost, coming and going as her duties required, without anyone ever being the wiser. Besides, her job was lonely enough that she enjoyed being out among people, even if she rarely interacted with them. At the moment, though, she wasn't in the mood for people watching. The meeting with the other elders had been tense, to say the least. Most of them had written off Abby Preston as a lost cause, in spite of her potential. They were content to wait for her to return on her own, if she ever did so. Miriam, of course, knew enough about Victor now that she suspected Abby couldn't return home, even if she wanted to. Miriam told the other elders that the runner, Callie Linder, had implicated Victor as an agent of the Vampire Syndicate, but she had kept back the full story of how long Victor had been working for them. She still didn't have a satisfactory answer for why she had been unable to read Victor's mind. Until she did... She didn't want to weaken her own position in leadership by admitting how Victor had murdered his fellow size and pinned the blame for his actions on Philippe Devereaux. Without that crucial piece of information, the Elders were content to leave Victor alone. The chief priority now was decoding the vampire's nanotech virus and developing a counter for it. The vamps no doubt considered Victor a valuable ally, and moving against him might provoke them to unleash the nanos before the hive was ready. And in the meantime, Abby Preston is left to fend for herself, Miriam thought in disgust. It continually amazed her how the elders could be so cautious about endangering their own lives, while at the same time they let teeps like Abby, Brian, and Fiona, the bright young future of the collective put themselves in grave danger for the sake of the hive's long-term goals. Miriam had long argued that the young were the hive's most precious resource, far more important than the elders themselves, many of whom were past the age of childbearing. Of course, given that she was a deputy headmistress at Westfall, that position was only to be expected, and perhaps for that reason the other elders gave it little weight. She sighed. We've shaped our entire society around maximizing reproduction. Yet, when the time comes to endanger our own lives for the sake of those children, we hesitate. Making sacrifices for the next generation is so much easier to think about in the abstract. She looked around the subway car, wondering if she would see any children among the passengers. She was somewhat surprised to find that she was alone— The other passengers must have all gotten off at previous stops. That's another thing about the grey, she thought ruefully. There's no one to stop you from sinking into your own little world. She glanced at the clock, and marveled again when she saw that it was only a quarter to midnight. Fairly late, certainly, but on Saturdays the trains ran until three in the morning. She would have expected at least some other passengers to be headed uptown at this hour, A soft, prickling sensation began to crawl down Miriam's neck, a gentle but persistent urging that she hadn't felt in a long time. She had learned to pay attention to that feeling. Getting to her feet, she went over to the map and looked for the glowing red LED that showed the train's present location. They were well out of the downtown district, and the next two stops were both closed for renovation. The nearest exit was fifteen minutes away. She had just processed the implications of that when the lights in the subway car abruptly went out. The overhead fluorescent panels, the running lights on the floor, even the exit signs and the little LED on the map, all of them went black at once, plunging the car into total darkness. Even the lights in the tunnel outside seemed to be out of commission, The darkness wrapped itself around Miriam like a serpent, cold, supple, and suffocating. She closed her eyes and took a deep breath, focusing her psychometabolic power on her sense of sight. When she opened her eyes, she could see again, albeit in fuzzy shades of black and white. Infrared vision wasn't very good for making out details, but it was enough to let her defend herself. She kept taking deep, steady breaths— as she channeled the rest of her power into enhancing her strength and agility. She was concerned, of course, frightened even, but she was far from defenseless. She had every reason to be confident in her abilities. Then the doors opened at both ends of the subway car, and her confidence slipped away like sand through her fingers. There were twelve of them, six on each side, a mixture of men and women but all of them with athletic frames and a lean, hungry look in their softly glowing eyes. They were armed with electric stun wands, clubs, chains, and other implements of mayhem—weapons designed to incapacitate and capture rather than kill. But most disconcerting of all was the fact that they all looked dark. She saw some with Orombian features, some that had to be milk-white Northlanders— and a whole range of faces in between, but right now all of them looked dark gray. In the black-and-white world of Miriam's Infravision, that could only mean one thing. Their bodies were barely above room temperature. Fighting down a surge of fear, she opened her ears and listened. She couldn't hear a single heartbeat among them. The group in front of her parted, making way for a young man in a leather jacket. He was of average height, with short spiky hair, angular features, and eyebrows that looked like they had been sculpted. His expression was one of smug self-assurance, with a crooked sneer that promised cruelty untempered by human compassion. He raised a stun wand in his manicured fingers and crossed it over his chest, sketching a mocking bow toward Miriam. "'Good evening, Ms. Boktavar.' the vampire said, grinning like death itself. We'd like to talk to you about the opportunity of a lifetime, so to speak. Miriam watched the vampires closely, taking stock of her tactical situation. The prognosis wasn't good. Her psychometabolic powers were more than a match for an average, low-blooded street vamp, but these vampires knew who she was. If they had learned that much, they would know what she was capable of. They wouldn't send fledglings to take down Miriam. They would send the strongest thugs they could spare. The lead vampire gave her a knowing smile. Obviously, he'd seen the realization dawning on her face. This doesn't have to get ugly, Miss Bakhtavar. Malcolm Ardvalos just wants to offer you a job. Great Maker... Miriam thought, as terror wrapped its claws around her heart. They're going to turn me. She hoped they would be stupid enough to try biting her while she was still conscious. A vampire's mind was disconnected from its physical brain, suspended in a sort of no-man's land between life and death, so normally telepathy couldn't affect them. The act of feeding changed that, creating a psychic bond between the vampire and its victim. A vamp could use that bond to exert its will over its captive, binding them to its control. Mundanes could do nothing to stop them. But telepaths were another story altogether. A vampire who entered a teep's mind created a link that the teep could exploit. Vamps had no defenses against a mind blast or a psychic compulsion that was force-fed to them through their own blood bond. Of course, that would only work if Miriam were still conscious. Judging from the clubs and stun rods the vamps carried, they probably already knew that. Keep him talking. Look for options. And what makes Mr. Ardvalos believe that I'm interested in working for him? she asked. I have a very rewarding job already, thank you. Oh, but I think you'll find that Mr. Ardvalos can be very generous the vamp said, grinning. He's heard all about your talents. We've been looking for someone like you for a long time. Miriam eyed the windows on either side of the subway car. Perhaps she could break one and escape through the tunnels? She didn't like the odds on that. Her regenerative powers could deal with jumping out of a moving train, but the problem was the tunnels themselves— The entire maglev network was kept depressurized to one-third of an atmosphere, in order to cut down on friction. In the event that a train broke down, that was still enough oxygen to keep everyone alive until they could be rescued, but not enough to do anything strenuous. It would be like trying to run a race on top of the highest mountain in the world. Think, Miriam, think. There must be a way out of this. Well, she said... If we're going to discuss business opportunities, perhaps we should begin with introductions. You clearly know who I am, but I am afraid I cannot say the same in return. The vamp sketched another mocking bow. You can call me Braddock, ma'am. Braddock? Malcolm Sion? Braddock chuckled. I see you do know me. Miriam fought down the rising panic and nodded. By reputation, at least. Mr. Ardvalos must be particularly interested in my talents, for him to send such a prestigious messenger. Consider it a mark of his respect, Braddock said dryly. But if you know me, then you should also know that I'm a very busy man. I'm afraid I only have time to make this offer once. He extended a hand. Mr. Ardvalos wants to meet you. Come along peacefully, and you won't be harmed. Out of time. She looked up at the ceiling, hoping for inspiration from on high, and spotted it. It wasn't much of a plan, but it would have to do. I'm sorry, Mr. Braddock, but I'm afraid I'm rather busy myself tonight. If Mr. Ardvalos would care to contact me at Westfall during normal business hours, perhaps we could make other— Miriam's enhanced senses gave her only a split second of warning, but that was enough. She leapt up and grabbed the handrails on the ceiling of the car, pulling her body out of the way. The spell that one of the vamps behind her had been preparing shot through empty air and struck the vamps in front of her, wrapping them in a mesh of crackling purple energy. Entanglement spell. She swung her legs forward and let go of the handrails, "'landing in the doorway behind the pack of entangled vamps. "'She took off into the next car as fast as her enhanced muscles could carry her. "'After her!' Braddock snarled. "'And Keenan, get this thing off us, you stupid fuck!' "'Miriam's car had been six cars away from the front of the train. "'She made it through the first and was halfway across the second "'when the first pair of vamps caught up with her. "'They grabbed her legs and held on with a vice-like grip.' Letting her fall face first toward the floor. Channeling all her available power into boosting her strength, Miriam tucked and rolled with her momentum instead of falling flat. Her somersault flung the two vampires through midair and slammed them onto their backs in front of her. She struck out, lightning fast, and put out their eyes with a pair of two handed hook strikes. While they writhed in pain, she backflipped and regained her feet. She grabbed one of the vertical steel poles in the standing room section of the train and pulled it loose from its moorings. Wielding it like a quarterstaff, she crushed the heads of both vamps, then ran past them, continuing her run toward the front of the train. If she could just reach the control station in the front car, she had a chance of getting out of this alive. She heard two more of her pursuers closing in on her as she entered the third car, so she turned and struck out with the pole as they drew near. The vamps dodged the strike. Too fast, they're just too fast! And one of them, a female, swung a chain at her, wrapping it around her wrist. The vamp darted around one of the vertical poles and yanked hard on the chain, using the pole as a pulley to draw Miriam into range. Meanwhile the other vamp, a slender Arambian male, pulled a handful of reagents from his belt, and started casting a spell. Miriam threw her staff at the wizard like a blunt-ended javelin, crushing several of his fingers and spilling the gents onto the floor of the train. Then she let herself move with the force of the chain, darting toward the pole faster than the female vamp could drag her there. Miriam grabbed the pole in both hands, and swung herself around in a flying kick, aiming for the vamp's head. The vamp dropped to the floor, dodging the attack, and sprang back up immediately, launching a quick series of blows at Miriam's head and torso. Miriam blocked and answered with attacks of her own, even as she worked to unravel the chain from her wrist. The vamp was faster than Miriam, but Miriam was stronger. She finally got a solid grip on the woman and pulled her into a grapple, trapping the chain between them. She struck the vampire's knee and snapped it backwards, sending her sprawling to the floor. The wizard tackled Miriam from behind, but she threw him over her shoulder and sent him sailing to the back of the car, where he struck two more vamps that had just entered. Behind them were the two she had incapacitated earlier, their eyes already regrown in their sockets. Fighting them takes too much time, Miriam thought desperately. Need to slow them down. Five vamps in one confined spot she wasn't going to get a better opportunity than this. She pulled out one of the egg-shaped reagent pods she had purchased earlier that day and threw it at the cluster of vamps. The garlic bomb exploded just over their heads, creating a cloud of fine dust that was barely visible in her black-and-white heat vision. I'll have to remember to thank Ms. Linder for that idea, if I ever see her again. While the other vampires staggered and retched, Miriam snapped the neck of the one at her feet. She would regenerate quickly, but the injury gave Miriam enough time to pull a knife and a gun from the woman's belt. She checked the clip, which was full, then slid it back in and put bullets in the heads of all six vamps. Between the cranial injuries and the garlic, she hoped she'd bought herself enough time. Channeling all her power back into speed, she raced for the head car. Once there, she locked the door to the car behind her, and used two of the steel poles to bar it shut. The door to the control station was locked, so she pulled the door off its hinges. The little one-person compartment was empty. No doubt the train was set for remote operation. None of the text on the control panel was readable in infrared. All of the equipment glowed in various shades of flat gray, depending on how much heat it was putting out. Miriam hit the light switch by the door, then switched her eyes back to normal spectrum vision. Now that she could read the controls, Miriam switched the system back to manual operation and pressed the button labeled Emergency Decoupling. A touch panel lit up, showing a diagram of the train with the coupling points marked in red. Miriam tapped the box in the upper right corner that read Select All. A confirmation message popped up decouple all cars? She pushed yes. A series of soft jerks ran through the train, as one by one the trailing cars decoupled and disappeared from the display. Each of the cars would glide to a halt, using their individual maglev engines to decelerate, before sinking gently to the ground. Meanwhile, Miriam's car sped onward, heading for the next open subway station. The vampires would no doubt pursue her on foot, but once she got out of the tunnels, she would have no trouble disappearing into the crowds. On a hunch, she pulled out her mobile phone and turned it off. It was the only way she could think of that they could have tracked her location. They must have captured or killed one of her agents, and used his phone to trace back to her. Exiting the control booth, she slid wearily into one of the passenger seats and closed her eyes. Ten seconds later, one of the windows on the opposite side of the train shattered. Wind howled. Safety glass showered the floor. Miriam's ears screamed with pain at the sudden pressure change, as the train vented its atmosphere to the depressurized tunnel outside. A pair of legs slipped down from the roof of the car, and Braddock pulled himself inside, his fangs glinting in a death's-head grin peek a Gasping in the too-thin air, Miriam put all her power into speed and darted around him before he had the chance to act. She threw herself from the train without a second's hesitation. For an instant there was only the sound, the crunch of snapping bones, oddly muted in the thin atmosphere of the tunnel. Then, pain. A world of it, a universe of it, desperate agony that erased any sense of time or place or purpose. Her body instinctively threw all of its psychic power into regeneration, knitting her back together with inhuman speed. But from Miriam's perspective, the pain was infinite and eternal. The whine of maglev engines decelerating brought her back to the present. Somewhere, further down the tunnel, Braddock had stopped the car. He would be coming back for her. Miriam struggled to her hands and knees, then finally to her feet, bracing herself against the wall of the tunnel. She looked around for an emergency exit, and spotted a sign pointing to the left, back down the way they had come. She staggered down the tunnel, one shaky step in front of another. Her body had exhausted its oxygen stores in the effort to heal herself, and it still hadn't been able to finish the job. All of her psychic powers depended on her brain, and her brain needed oxygen. Down here in the tunnels, she barely had enough air to walk and remain conscious, much less to use any of her powers. The emergency exit appeared up ahead, maybe a hundred meters away, an illuminated airlock painted in stripes of red and yellow. A ladder ran up the curving side of the tunnel and into the small alcove that housed the airlock. Miriam kept moving forward, gulping down deep, heaving gasps of air. She could feel the nitrogen boiling out of her blood, setting her lungs on fire, and driving deep lances of pain into her joints. Her vision blurred. A splitting headache began to pound in her temples. Still, she kept moving. By the time she reached the ladder, she had nearly forgotten where she was, or what she was trying to accomplish. Part of her just wanted to lie down and go to sleep until the pain went away. No, keep moving, you old fool. Damn you, keep moving. She put her hands on the rungs, gripped them as tightly as her agonized fingers could manage, and began to pull herself up, one rung at a time. Her tortured joints pleaded for mercy. Her vision dimmed, graying at the edges at first, then blacking out entirely. She kept going, working by touch, feeling for each rung, and then gasping in pain as she pulled herself up. How many rungs were there? She couldn't remember. She knew she had to be nearly there. It couldn't possibly be much further. She reached up for the next rung, and her hand closed on empty air. Panicking, she flailed around, seeking anything to hold on to. And then she had it. Her fingers closed on the handle for the airlock. With one last gasp of strength, she pulled down on the handle. There was a rumbling noise as the hatch slid open, but she felt it in the rungs of the ladder more than she heard it. She reached up again, grasped the frame of the airlock door, and began to haul herself up. Then a hand grabbed her foot and pulled, hard, and she fell three meters to the concrete floor of the tunnel. She landed on her shoulder, which dislocated on impact. Stars danced in front of eyes already blinded by loss of air. It was nowhere near as bad as falling from a moving train, but her body's regenerative powers were long since gone. She gasped and sobbed, unable to move, unable to think. She felt the cold, numbing fingers of unconsciousness begin to wrap themselves around her mind, and part of her welcomed it. No! Get up! Move! Run! But she could not. She felt strong arms wrap themselves around her, cold hands caressing her skin. She couldn't see anything, but she heard the voice. Damn, you look like you're in pretty bad shape there, Miriam, Braddock said. But don't worry. I'll make it all better. And that's the end of Chapter 41. Come back next time, when Ava comes to visit Danny at the sanctuary, and Artax finally comes up with a plan to help her. Oscar Wilde said, Behind the perfection of a man's style must lie the passion of a man's soul. So let's take a peek behind the curtain. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. This update covers the week of August 28th through September 3rd. I broke my chain on Sunday, August 29th, after 72 straight days of working on either writing or the podcast. The day job has been taking a lot out of me lately, and I badly needed a rest day. I spent most of the rest of the week gradually editing the podcast episode that I recorded on Saturday, working on it here and there whenever I had time. I worked on the podcast on five out of seven days this week, but I didn't do any new writing. Looking back at the month of August, I wrote a total of 4,427 words in ten days, averaging 443 words per day. That ranks 69th out of 76 months since I started this podcast. However, I also finished nine episodes of the podcast, and did the raw recording for a tenth, which is a personal best. Compared to July, my word count decreased by 56%, and my writing time decreased by 60%. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641 Three nine zero zero, Then enter extension 255 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press.